welcome to Originality, the podcast where we talk about creating and creativity and explore the roots of creative genius. I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims, and I am joined by Kay Tempest Bradford. Hello, Tempest. Hi. Hi. So this is actually like our first episode of February. We're recording this on January 7th, but I wanted to ask you if you have any goals for the new year. Um, I didn't warn you about this. I just sprung this on you so we can cut it out um, if you want. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. <laughs> goals. Um, my goal is to not have too many goals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> actually, interestingly enough, okay, one of my big goals this year is to slide as far away from toxic social media as possibly can. Mm. So that means cutting back on Facebook, which is evil. Sorry, Facebook, but you're evil. Um, Cutting back on Twitter. And one of the things I've been doing is spending more time on Instagram. And yes, before you at me, I know that Instagram is owned by Facebook. Um, But Instagram actually has been a really happy place for me to be because Unlike on Facebook, it's a, it's pictures of people doing cool stuff and seeing nice things and and it's not like full of sad times and achy breaky hearts and things like that. So that's why Instagram has been my jam. But one of the drawbacks of Instagram is that I see ads every sixth post. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Oh, Instagram. And you can't turn them off. You can't get rid of them. And it's a bummer. So I think that perhaps Instagram has been listening to our podcast because a, a lot of the ads that I see are for planners. <laughs> oh, me too. The Ink and Vault. Ink and Vault planners. Yes. yes. Ink and Vault planner comes up a lot. I had to be like, Facebook, stop showing me this ad. Like, <laughs> stop it. Um, Ink and Vault planner. Uh, there was another, there's like a bunch of different planners. And, you know, a lot of them are, you know, very similar in... Um, not design because like there's no design to a bullet journal, but similar in sentiment to bullet journals. And so I have been actually looking into some of the planners that I see just in case we want to talk about them here on the show, actually. Oh, cool. And one of the planners, um, their system is like, at the beginning of the year, choose a word that will be your theme for the year and write that word on this page. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not buying this planner so I can do that. But I did like the idea of choosing a word that is a theme for the year. And so the word that I chose was consistency. Oh, nice. I Yeah, I would like to increase my consistency in the year 2018. And so um, there are some specific things I have been thinking about toward that theme, but I haven't necessarily set any particular goals around it yet but trying to keep it in mind as I think about like what my goals for each month might be or like what I'm, you know, how I am crafting my day, you know, as I do bullet journal stuff, because I did, I started a new bullet journal because even though the other one wasn't filled up, it's a new year. Therefore I need a new bullet journal. (laughs) Any excuse? No. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so that's, that's my thing right now is like trying to work on being more consistent with things uh, that are important and that matter. Nice. I like it. Yay. And getting the heck off of Facebook. (laughs) 
and getting the heck off of Facebook. Well, speaking of consistency, this is actually a cool, well, a, a good, a decentish segue. Um, we have a guest this week, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. This will all gel together, I swear. My name is Marisa McClellan, and I am the author of a trio of canning and preserving cookbooks, as well as a blog called Food and Jars. And then I also make a podcast for obsessive home cooks called Local Mouthful. All right. So Marisa is uh, a friend. Like She she lives in Philadelphia, and I've uh, had the, the pleasure of going out to dinner with her and, and all of that. But... One thing that I love uh, is actually kind of Marisa's uh, origin story, uh, like how she got got started writing cookbooks and writing the blog that she has. And so I'm going to let her talk about that here. I started my blog in 2009, and I really never intended it to become what it has become. Um, I started because I had been working as the editor, lead blogger of Slash Food, which was back in the day AOL's food blog. And that gig was coming to an end. And I had a full-time job too. So I was really just feeling like I needed to stay engaged and involved in the food blog community because it'd become a really important part of my life. And so I looked around and realized that nobody was really writing about canning on the internet. no one. Uh, and I learned later that there were a few people, but in sort of the circles I traveled, I didn't see anybody doing that. And it had been something I had always done and I loved jars. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna start my own food blog and I'm gonna call it Food and Jars because that's sort of both really specific and also crazy broad because you can put just about anything into a jar. And, um, and so I started doing it. And what happened was it was, so early 2009, it was sort of the start of the economic downturn. And I happened to be about three months ahead of the curve on this crazy canning trend. And so people all of a sudden were looking for canning information and I was there and it's just kept growing and expanding since then. Good timing. I like that. I like when things come together, you know, just at the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it, it it's nice. It's nice when that happens. So this is all setting up kind of the the catalyst or the reason I asked Marisa to be on the show is because she um she's built an audience online since, you know, well before 2009. So she started this this blog and um about canning, putting things in jars and now she's written a couple of cookbooks. She's writing another one now, maybe like literally even as we speak. Um, and it, it's just really cool to me how she built a following. And I wanted to have her on for her thoughts on it because I um, am in the middle of audience building. I mean, when you when you earn a, a living online, you're never really done audience building. You're kind of always doing it. But you know, originality is still fairly new and we're still working on on building an audience for this show. And my business, App Launch Map, is also a thing where it's like, okay, working on on building an audience um, and, and getting clients because that's how you get clients, right? If, if nobody knows about you, you can't get clients. And so audience building has really been on my mind for the last, I don't know, 
eight or nine months. And I was like, I need to have someone on who has done this really, really successfully. And that's why, why Marisa, you know, agreed to come on the show. That's awesome. And yeah, audience building is really, really important um, for artists. If only because at this point, we we're really now getting to it where your audience is going to be how you are able to sustain your artistic practice as a professional thing. Um, whether it's because you have them supporting you directly via Patreon or they're buying your art or books or attending your performances and buying your CDs or videos or whatever it is because they heard about it. At this point, like that's really, it, it, that's really the only, it has to be the artist who does a lot of that work anymore. Um, because you can't rely on the, you know, your, the publisher or the record company or the whoever to do that for you anymore. Um, because sometimes they will, and sometimes they won't do a good job of it. And I keep hearing over and over how what publishers really want is, you know, writers that come with an audience, what, you know, these, you know, companies that do whatever really want are artists that come with an audience. So as, Sometimes annoying as it is to have to think about that when you're doing art stuff, it is something that you really have to think about, but it doesn't necessarily have to like totally cut into all of your art time. No, it doesn't have to rule your life. And I think one of, one of the things that I know I respond to as an audience member, you know, one of those people who belong to the audience that someone has been building is I really like seeing works in progress. I like seeing, um, you know, shots of scribbled notebook pages or, um, sketch ideas or, um, hearing snippets of a song or seeing a, a wireframe for an app or like whatever it, I think it's, it, it makes me feel like I'm involved in the process of creation, which is something that I really appreciate. And, um, and so it not only does it not have to be something really time consuming, it can just be part of your process anyway. Just show a little bit of what you're already doing. Yes. I agree. Um, so I wanted, uh, I wanted to ask Marisa, cause I, I think that one thing I struggle with, and I think that a lot of people struggle with, is feeling like I need to be an expert on a topic before I speak about it. So um, originality is sometimes a real challenge for me because I am not a creativity expert. I'm just someone who wants to um, exercise creativity in the world figuring out how that works for me. And this part of what the show is about is encouraging other people and also exploring that for myself. Um, so I asked Marisa how much she knew about canning before she started blogging. Cause I figured, you know, oh, well she was clearly, you know, she's clearly an expert and here's what she had to say. I certainly didn't know as much as I do now. Um, I, I knew some, you know, I knew the basics, I knew just enough to be a little bit dangerous, I think, at the time, because I had a lot of confidence and some of it was definitely misplaced. Um, but I rapidly came to understand how much I didn't know. 
And so did some really aggressive self-education to make sure that when people were asking me questions, I was giving them the best information possible. And that was a really useful time in my sort of learning curve as a canning and preserving writer because I just read everything I could get my hands on to make sure that I had the best information possible. You don't have to be an expert to give a talk or write a story or start drawing or lettering or, you know, opening a, a music composition tool and starting to to play around with music. But you don't have to be an expert to do these things. You don't have to be an expert to create and you don't have to be an expert to share what you create with the world. Definitely. And I feel like this is talked about quite a bit when it comes to sort of more businessy or life skill things about how men, cisgender men will often put themselves more forward be like, I may not be an expert, but I can go on about this for days. (laughs) Meanwhile, women um, who feel like they're not an expert in a topic might decline to give their opinion on it or talk about it or start a blog on it or whatever because they're like, well, I, I don't know enough to like really tell anybody anything. And so therefore, but no, no, my friends, yeah. you don't have to be an expert in order to like just start talking about stuff. And to, because as you know, Marisa said, she learned a lot. Like now she knows a lot more about this topic than she did. And that was like part of the journey of her blog was to learn more. You know, if if you are so interested in a subject that you want to talk about it a lot, then you're obviously going to be interested enough to learn more about it. But in the context of things like being a talking head or being approached by somebody to give your opinion on a subject, don't let not knowing 100% about it stop you from from talking about it and giving your perspective on it and and sharing what you do know. Because I will tell you that most of the time when I have been brought into a situation where I'm brought in as a subject expert, this actually has happened a lot, um, especially when I was a technology journalist, I would be called to be like a talking head on like some TV news thing. Or um, more recently, I kept getting calls around Halloween to come beyond conservative talk shows to talk about cultural appropriation. That was a thing, <laughs> um, right? Because I wrote a thing on NPR. And so that made me on the list, that put me on the list of experts. And so the first time I did that and the first time I was called to be an expert on like a, on tech something on TV, I did a whole lot of research and I was like, I have to make sure I have all these facts straight and this, that, and the other thing. And I have to know like all this stuff and I had all these things prepared. And then meanwhile, I, I was not asked questions that went as deep as I researched. I was not you know, even they weren't even interested in having a question or having a discussion on that level. They were interested more in having a more surface level discussion. In the case of the cultural appropriation thing, they were really hoping that I would just have like some screaming fight with them. But in the case of the tech stuff, it was like, it was not geared toward people who understood a lot about tech and needed an in-depth guide into the very intricacies of this one thing. It was geared more toward people who were like, what, what's a netbook? Is that like a Kindle? What should I get? A netbook or a Kindle? That was a real question that I was asked on Fox uh, News. That's yeah. Yeah. Should people get 
a netbook or a Kindle? And I was like, I know I must have like had two seconds where I was like, that what? How is that even a question you're asking me? Well, do you want to read exclusively or? Yes. So, you know, if, if you know anything about a topic that's more than just like what you might find in like some article that you read in Time Magazine and like not even, not even an article you read in Time Magazine, some article that you read in the local weekly. If you know about more about a subject than that, then you know more than most people and you can speak to it in an expert way. Yep. Believe me. Yep. Preach it. Yeah. And, um, I, I think I, sh- I struggle with this. Um, I think, you know, Tempest to your point, a lot of, a lot of people struggle with that. So I wanted to include that as just like a, Marisa is at this point, like an expert. And while she was always knowledgeable, it's not like she set up the blog to be a, like Marisa's canning journey or whatever, you know, she's always, always been learning. Right. And I think that that's true. No matter what you do, you will never know everything about a topic. You there's just so much nuance, like in everything in the world, right? You could, you could specialize on earthworms and you will probably not know everything there is to know about earthworms. And so don't let that fear stop you because if you're doing it right, you're always going to be learning about the thing that you're talking about or the thing that you love. Um, so that was one thing to build an audience, it's okay to say, I don't know, you know, I, I I don't know. I'll need to do some research or I don't know. Here's someone who has more expertise in this particular area, or I don't know, let me consult with people and get back to you. Or, um, Hey, I learned something new today. And some people will be like, Oh, everybody knew that. Not true. Um, so, so that was my first thing. Don't think you have to know everything before you get started because you don't have to know everything. Uh, so we kind of established that. And then I asked how she builds her audience. What did audience building look like for food in jars, you know, circa 2009, 2010? Well, I did start out with a little bit of an audience. I've been blogging in some format or another since 2005. Um, so I had a, my own little personal blog that I wrote on and it still exists, but it, you know, gets updated like twice a year. Oddly, that that personal blog is how I met my husband. Um, but I so I had that blog, and then Scott and I also used to make an online cooking show called Fork You. So between the personal blog and the video podcast, and um, coming from Slash Food, I had sort of a little bit of a critical mass there. And back in the day, back in two thousand nine, one of the best ways to build your audience was to follow other blogs that you really enjoyed and leave comments because that was those were the days in which there was sort of a robust robust commenting culture and so you know what I did and what other people did is you would go through and read the comments on a post and if someone left an articulate or interesting comment you'd click through to their blog and if you liked what you saw there you would follow it and so back in those days that was a really useful tool to growing your audience is to leave, you know, thoughtful, appropriate, relevant comments on other people's blogs so that that would sort of form a trail of breadcrumbs that would lead people to you. And so that's, I did some of that. Um, I also had the good fortune to know some people who 
were also bloggers. And so they saw me starting this project. Twitter was really powerful for me back in the beginning days. And of course, it's changed a lot since then. So these days, audience building is a very different ball game from what it was when I was first starting out. Um, I mean, these days, it's much more about posting useful or interesting or compelling or really just uh, when it gets down to it, beautiful content on Instagram that then will lead people to your content on your blog. You know, so much of it is a hashtag game. Um, I kind of miss the old days when it was about thoughtful, useful comments and content. Um, but the world has changed and I don't think it's going back. Alas. Yeah. I think Building an audience now is a lot different than it was just even a couple of years ago. Um, and it, it's it's hard work. It's hard work. And that's, I think, where, um, and Marisa will talk about this a little bit later in a clip I'll play, um, but th that's where consistency comes in is because you have to, if you're podcasting, you need to produce episodes consistently. Um, if you're you know, blogging, you need to show up, whatever it is, like whether it's once a week or three times a week or every day or whatever that is for you, like consistency and reliability are really important for doing that. Yes. Not that I know anything about that. The person whose other podcast has been on hiatus for a year and a half. I don't, <laughs> we don't talk about how the Bright Gear hasn't had an episode in a year and a half. Um, but well, yeah, um, just it's hard. To, it's hard. <laughs> Podcasting is incredibly difficult. Originality, less than or equal, would not have existed if I didn't have somebody to edit the episodes. Originality wouldn't happen if someone else, my husband, God bless his soul, didn't edit the episodes because I don't like doing it and I would not do it. He likes doing it, so he does it. Editing episodes is hard work and it takes a lot of time. Even for short episodes, it takes a lot of time to produce an episode. Yeah, yeah, it does. And so that was that's been the main barrier to everything. But but things are happening. So hopefully it will it will not be so much of a barrier going forward. But yeah, it's you know, being consistent with putting stuff out, like that's that's what often would trip me up with that podcast in particular, because I kept thinking, I can do this every week. Knowing your limitations. <laughs> yeah. That's very helpful sometimes. But yeah, and and I think that in terms of the way that building an audience has changed, you know, she's right. There was a huge commenting culture not that many years ago. It hasn't even been 10 years, Aline. Yeah. It hasn't even been 10 no, years. No, just a couple of years. It makes me weep. Um, And now we've moved on to this thing where people don't engage as much in comments in general as they used to, but there are still some places where people are engaging in comments. I actually kind of really envy the people who stuck with the blogging thing in a way that I did not. And it was partially because for me, I didn't do it because the majority of my blogging was actually really happening on LiveJournal. And once I made the switch to primarily posting on WordPress. I remember the day that I realized that I wasn't posting as much on my WordPress blog as I have been posting on my live journal because I had this mental I like conception of live journal is where you just post anything. You have a long post, you post that. You have a short post about what you ate, you post that. You could post there 10, 12 times a day and that's okay and nobody cares and it's fine. 
but that's not the way that a WordPress blog felt. Like that felt more like, oh no, I have to wait until I have something important to say. And I can really only post there like once a day, twice at the most, because, you know, that's what a, a real blog is like. Like live journal is just, you know, me talking to my friends, but WordPress is a real blog. And that nobody told me that. Nobody ever made me feel that way. I just, for some reason, like had that in my head and it stopped me from engaging as much and then blogging as much as I used to. And then like everybody left live journal and then like Facebook came along, Twitter came along, whatever. But there are some people who still have people who like make comments on their blog on a regular basis and they're there every day. And they're actually like, they're little communities with inside their blogs. I'm going to bring up uh, John Scalzi, just like I did on our mm-hmm. last episode, but, but that's an, another That's a person who people come to the whatever every day. They're consistently there because it's a community for them. And there are actually several different writers that I know of that, that do have that still, you know, they stuck with that blog mostly because they had like already a lot of people coming there all the time and engaging with them or whatever. And they weren't like all over the place with live journal and and whatnot. Um, And so, yeah, like their blog space is a community space for their people. Um, Whether it be fans, people they know. I had that when I ran the angry black woman blog, the problem became that once I, I got a job, like a real actual grown up adult job Mm -hmm. blogging on the angry black woman unfortunately took a back seat because it was very time consuming. You know, when I started that blog, I was a freelancer and I wasn't doing that much. And that's why I was able to blog as consistently and build up an audience and whatnot. But once I got a nine to five job, it was much harder to keep that going. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even have comments on my blog and granted my, you know, my blog blog, which is aleanmean.com is really just a place for me to write. But I started thinking about it and thinking about the topics I was writing about and the comments I might get. And I was just like, I don't think I want to deal with that. And so I didn't, I just stopped and, or I, I took them off. And then when we redesigned it, my husband redesigned it a couple of years ago, uh, which is still a design I super love. Um, but it was like, yeah, comments are not a thing that you need to worry about. I'm not, I'm not allowing those. If people want to get in touch with me, you know, there's Twitter, there's, well, I mean, there's Twitter. I had my email address on there for a while, but I was getting like support requests for my former employer. (laughs) And I was like, no, I don't think I need to do that. Um, and so, I don't, I don't even know, like I have basic stats, but that doesn't tell me how many people are subscribed via RSS. Uh, so I have no idea how many people are reading my blog. And really there are very few ways to interact with me, especially if you're not on like Twitter or micro.blog or maybe even Instagram. Those are really the only, only places where I have a public facing profile. Um, Facebook is locked down. It's for like people I've met in person. I don't have a LinkedIn profile, like nothing. So uh, sometimes I wonder if it were something that I were doing for audience building, would comments be the way to go? I I don't know anymore. I really don't know anymore. Yeah. Because what complicates all of this is the fact that even more so now than it was 10 years ago, getting, allowing people to have free access to you especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a woman of color, means that you just get a lot of crap, a lot of insults, 
slurs. Yep. All kinds of stuff thrown at you. And you're like, I don't want to have to deal with this. I mean, honestly, that was one of the reasons why letting go of blogging on the angry black woman on a regular basis was a little bit easier because I mean, sometimes just the vilest comments would come through. I can imagine. And, you know, and I get it a little bit now on my personal blog because, you know, something will happen where I'll publish an article or something. And no, this is funny. When I published the cultural appropriation is indefensible article in NPR last year, like in the summer, I think it was. By the time that I published that, NPR had decided to turn off the comments on their stuff. They used to have discussed comments on everything. And then they turned them off. And I wasn't aware of that. But that had been a decision made most likely because the comment sections were just terrible. Right. Well, terrible, terribleness. And they just said, we do not have the ability to moderate these comments, you know, in the way that they really need to be moderated. And we're just not going to do it. And so they turned them off, which, yay, I'm 100% behind that decision. But because people couldn't comment on that article and tell me how stupid I was and how terrible I was and how I was a racist for saying that people shouldn't culturally appropriate, mm-hmm. they came to my blog and left those comments on unrelated posts. Oh, great. Yeah. Just like, you know, it was, I think it was a post about like an episode of originality and they're like, you're wrong about cultural appropriation. And for a minute I was confused. I was like, why, why are you here? What's happened? What? Right. <laughs> like it was only when I went to NPR to see that there were no comments that they were gone. I was like, Oh, that's why they've come here. So yeah. And that's, that's on the minor end and it was still super annoying. So it's, it's something to think about, but it's also something it's complicated still because yeah. of that. And, and it complicates audience building, Yeah, you know, especially with artists, because you're going to have, you want to be accessible so that more people will know about your stuff so that you can inform people when you have new things. I mean, you can inform people when there are things that they could buy, download, listen to, watch, whatever. But then you also have to deal with people who are just going to, you know, yell at you, degrade you, whatever it is, a lot of times the, when the troll class shows up, it's like not even because of something that you did. You know, it's not about you or your art, but it's still like a tax, personal tax against you. And so you have to balance whether you have to balance your openness with the, with how much you can deal with in that realm. For sure. But I mean, it's, it's necessary. And, um, I mean, it's not, especially if you, if you're not speaking out about like inequalities and injustices, I think it's a lot easier. You know, if you're, you're, um, whatever that is, an app creator or, or an artist or a hand letter or, you know, a writer or whatever, and you're sharing snippets of your work, typically, what I see in the comments is, um, you know, support and encouragement. And I'm thinking of Instagram specifically here because I, it really seems like Instagram, people are happier there. Like you'll see the same post on Instagram and Facebook and there'll be completely different comments, which is bizarre, you know, different tones of comments. But what I, what I mostly see with some exceptions is people really responding to and uplifting the person who is posting. Not always. Um, but I appreciate that. Um, 
I asked Marisa for other audience building advice too, because she, you know, she continually works at this. It's not like she reached a critical mass and she's like, oh no, I can't take any more audience members on the internet. I have a finite, you know, capacity for that. That's not a thing that happens in most cases. So here are, here are some of her tips, other tips anyway. Consistency is a big part of the puzzle. Um, for instance, let's, um, I do twice a month, I do Facebook live streaming cooking demos in my kitchen. And when I started doing them a year ago, you know, maybe 30 or 40 people would show up. And just, I mean, I haven't had a massive audience growth, but now I do them twice a month and 200 people show up to watch them. And while that's not, you know, that's not enough to like get a sponsor or, um, monetize, it's still growth. It's still consistent growth. And I credit a lot of that to the fact that, you know, I do it on the first and the third Monday nights of the month, every month. And if I can't do it, I let people know so they don't feel like I'm, you know, not being reliable or dependable. And I think that that's been pretty huge. And if I look at my podcast growth again, you know, our podcast maybe gets 12 to 1500 downloads per episode, which again is not necessarily um, numbers that you can monetize, but it's better than the 60 to 80 we got when we started two and a half years ago. And so even though it's slow growth, I feel like slow, you know, slow, small, dedicated audiences these days are better than giant audiences that you paid for. And so, yeah. To me, it's like consistency and being satisfied with constant slow growth is probably the key to building an audience these days. I didn't really like hearing that, to be completely honest. But I think she's How right. How dare she? How dare she? <laughs> How dare what do you she mean there's right? no magic bullet? <laughs> yeah, that whole... And, and that's my observation, too, is that um, that audience building growth, it's my observation and experience. It kind of it goes in in bursts it's fascinating like all suddenly I'll get like 80 Twitter followers and then I'll have nothing for weeks and then I'll get like I don't know like 20 Twitter followers and then there'll be nothing and then I'll get like four or five people who follow me and it's really it's interesting how it goes it goes like that. And that's for, you know, my personal account. That's for the app launch map account, how it just, it kind of, there are bursts and then it kind of recedes and then there's a burst and then it recedes. And often I don't know what happened that, what happened to cause that. Sometimes I do. Sometimes it's like, oh, this, this person with, you know, like a hundred thousand followers retweeted something I said. Uh, but sometimes it just comes out of nowhere and it's, it's odd. Yeah, I don't I don't normally know what even causes people to follow me on Twitter. And I'm also consistently amazed like that many people follow me cuz I don't track it. I don't get notifications about it. Um the only time I generally look is if I'm looking at my profile for something and I'll see at the top be like, "Oh, you have this many followers." I'm like, "Oh, wow. That's nice." And then one day I had 5,555 followers and I was like, "Oh, wow. That's the best." And then like an hour later, I had 5,553 and I was like, excuse me, right? what is this? This is not acceptable. And so I, I tweeted, I was like, no, 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 I need two more people to follow me because this is unacceptable. But then like 20 people follow me <laughs> and it ruined everything. Dang it. Um, 
darn, no more. But now I'm trying to get to six, 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 six because it, and then it's yeah. gonna stop, right? Then no more people following me ever. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, it it does have to be slow, and I think that that's probably one of the things that I find the most annoying about the way that that we are told we have to think about social media, especially if we're trying to do any kind of audience building or selling or getting more people to pay attention or whatever. There's like constantly ads that I see or not even ads, but like just stuff that I see where they're like, get this many millions of followers and get this many clicks. And sometimes I'll look at my analytics and Twitter's like, well, you only have this much engagement and look, look how tiny this is. This is like in the 1% or whatever. I'm like, thanks Twitter for making me feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not literally trying to sell anything in particular. Um, and I think that all of Twitter's analytics tools are geared more toward people who have actual businesses with different kinds of goals than I do. But at the same time, like those business goals and business way of thinking about Twitter is shoved at even people who are like doing podcasts and who are artists and stuff. And it can make you feel like you need to have like this explosive amount of growth. And if you don't have this many followers, here's how to like get them more. And I think that's actually really detrimental. And I also think that it doesn't actually work because in the end, audience building is is actually organic. It's more organic than it is artificial. It has to be or else the audience that you build is like not actually a real audience, um, which makes it frustrating that all of our social medias are trying to like squash organic growth so that you have to buy an ad. Yeah, especially Facebook. Ugh. Facebook. Facebook. We've already said that Facebook is evil, right? Yeah. 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 It, it, it's, um, it, it's hard. And I think we do kind of culturally have this, this mindset, the bigger is better. Right. Uh, but I don't think that's true. And I think this is maybe kind of where it goes back to the days of where kind of blog comments were breadcrumbs that you could follow to find people who are, who are like-minded, but I think it's more important to have an engaged, a small engaged audience than it is to have a hundred thousand Twitter followers, half of who are like hate following you so that they can disagree with everything you say. And, you know, you know, some percentage are there to troll, um, not just to disagree, but to like actively troll you and, and that kind of thing. Like it's better to have a small, engaged, positive audience than it is to have a, this critical mass of people who exist to bring you down for whatever reason, because people are jerks. Yeah. Cause you know, it's a lot more about who's actually going to care about the the thing that you're doing who, you know, you could have 5,000 followers, but if, you know, none of them care that you're doing a live cooking demonstration and none of them show up, then it's like, well, what is the point of all those 5,000 followers if none of them care? Yeah. But it's usually, you know, the reason why you might have 5,000 followers who don't care is because you engage in some random trickery in order to get them all to follow you. Yeah. Oops. No <laughs> trickery. trickery. I tried trickery. It did not work. What did you try? I I did a contest. Uh, yeah, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. I learned that the hard way, but that's all right. I learned a lesson. 
it's disheartening when you do something like that. It doesn't work though. Right. You're like, oh, that didn't work at all. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Now I have um, self-confidence problems. Right. But you know, the the contest thing didn't work, but you know what? <laughs> it's not that this worked, but in the time that the right gear has been on hiatus, I've had a lot of people who are like, Oh, I love that podcast. I really love it. When's the next episode? I'm like, um, soon. <laughs> I'm working on it. Uh, and yeah, so I, I've had a lot of people and and it made me realize that I did have a core of people who were really just very interested in the topic. They were interested in what I was doing with that podcast. And so then I also was like, I'm just going to stop thinking about, um, I'm going to stop thinking about it in this way and start thinking about it in this other way. And and yeah, so I, I'm actually more focused on building the audience for my writing right now through Patreon and whatnot. And that that's definitely taking a whole other set of skills. Yeah, and that's a lot of work too. I think building a consistency. A yeah, consistency. It's the theme of the year and the episode. Uh, well, Marisa also talked about the benefits of some of small audiences kind of in addition to what we've said. So here are her thoughts. I feel like when you build a small audience, they're real, they, those are the people that become really dedicated. And so I've noticed this both um, through my blog and writing my books and then also through the podcast is that, you know, when you have a really dedicated group of people who love what you do, even if it's smaller, you know, it's like I'd rather have a smaller group of people who love what I do than a large people who large group of people who were sort of ambivalent or hateless under red. And, and I'm a sincere person and I think people pick up on that. So most of my audience regardless of where I, you know, what medium I'm sort of engaging in, um, they tend to be sincere along with me. And um, so I feel like the benefits of those things are once you build that, you know, smaller dedicated audience, if you create something that is a product that they're interested in or reflects what you do, they will buy it. You know, the conversion rate becomes much higher. Um, You know, so my first cookbook, has sold something like 85,000 copies. And, you know, for cookbooks in this world, that's pretty darn good. It's like, I don't have a giant audience, you know, but a lot of them bought that book because they're dedicated and they have self-selected themselves as, you know, a Food and Jars Marisa McClellan fan. The power of the small audience. It's awesome. Yeah. And, and yeah, because when you have people who are really, really, really engaged, they do tend to to bring in other people who may not be as engaged, but they'll be like, well, I'm here for that. You know, she has, you know, a hundred super fans and they are telling their friends, oh my God, you have to have this cookbook. Then, you know, if a hun- if those hundred people tell 10 other people, oh, you got to get this cookbook. And then like five of the people that they tell buy the cookbook and two of those people become super fans, like, yay. But, you know, still she sold like cookbooks to a bunch of people who, you know, they may not become like as dedicated to her personally, but they still bought that book and they probably might buy the next one, um, especially if Amazon tells them to. Amazon said I should buy this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it so... Yeah, it's it's not always about like the number of exact people that you have like specifically that you can speak to. Yeah. And it's I I think it takes some confidence to get to that point where you're like, okay, this is this is what I'm putting out in the world. 
and these are not the things I'm putting out in the world. And knowing what that is for you um, and not not trying to um, not trying to change what you're doing for the sake of being more palatable or for the sake of having a a broader swath of people. Um, I guess right now I'm thinking specifically of, um, you know, app or website creation or whatever, like have a focus for your app, know what it's supposed to do and make it do that thing. And don't let it get diluted by other people's, you know, opinions or whatever. You can definitely take them to heart, but you need to know what your app is doing so that you stay true to what that is supposed to be. If that shifts over time, that's okay, but you need to know what that's for. And there's the same thing with, um, you know, like my blog. I know my blog ultimately is for me, right? I'm writing that not to build an audience. Um, I'm writing it because, you know, people ask me questions that I feel like answering or I've discovered something I want to share or I just want to write and put something out in the world. It's not because I'm trying to gain followers. If I were trying to g- gain followers, I would blog more consistent, more consistently. I would pick a topic. Um, I would probably blog about tech. Um, I don't know. And, uh, you know, that's what I would do. But that's not why it exists. So whatever it is you're trying to build an audience for, know, know what it is you're doing and why, I guess. Have your... I don't want to say like your mission statement, but like, what is your elevator pitch for the thing that you're doing? I, I blog for me. Okay. Well, (laughs) I am my audience, right? But, um, I am creating, we create originality to help, uh, to help people, to help creative people feel, um, empowered, um, to explore where creativity comes from and inspire people. Um, less than or equal. I made, I created less than or equal so that, um, geeky people would be able to see that there is representation where there are, it it might be small, but that geeky space that they're in, they're not alone. There are other people like them. So I think knowing kind of what your mission is and and why you're doing something is really, really valuable for, for audience building because you can stay true to whatever that thing is. Yep. And another thing that I thought about, um, and she was talking about doing the cooking, the live on Facebook cooking things, is that you want to also match up what you're doing to what you like to do so it doesn't become an annoying burden, I guess is, yeah. is a thing. Because then people will be like, yes, you have to do some sort of live cast so that the people can see you and you have to um, be on Pinterest and Instagram and this and that and the other thing. And so that you can have the thing, you have to have this kind of blog and do whatever. But if it becomes like, a super burden, then you're not going to want to do it. It's, it seems to me that like she enjoys getting on Facebook live and doing a little mini cooking show, you know, twice a month on, you know, the first and third Monday. And if she didn't enjoy it, it wouldn't be as useful a thing for her because then people would be like, well, she's just doing that. Um, and playing around with different tools to see if they are something that you might be interested in. Like I have visual artist friends who sometimes do live casts of them drawing stuff because they're like, well, I got to draw this stuff anyway. And the people who are my fans enjoy watching the process. And so I'll set up a camera and I'll aim it at my you know, canvas and I'll let them watch me create this piece of work, create part of this piece of work, you know, for a certain amount of time. Um, 
my my friend who is a musician, he you know puts his phone on a you know a mount in his car, and sometimes he will like put on Instagram him singing his warm ups as he goes into work or something along those lines. And um, I there are several musicians, in fact, that I follow on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram who do things like that. And I love it because I'm like, yeah, I get to hear you like doing a little bit of singing and, you know, you're, you're enjoying your little life and it's great. And there, there also doesn't seem to be like any sort of like ultimate social media strategy behind it. They're just like, I'm doing this thing right now. I have the ability to allow you to watch me doing this thing. It's fun and it doesn't get in my way. And so there you go. You know, matching up the kind of things that you like to do with the kind of things that the people who are your fans or your potential fans might like to see, it just, you know, that is, that seems like a really good way to build an audience without making it seem like you're just trying to build an audience. Yeah. Um, I'm actually kind of doing a little bit of that right now. So I talked a bit ago, several episodes ago about how I was thinking about um, becoming a consultant for this makeup and skincare line I really like. And I went ahead and did that, you know, like I signed up mostly because I wanted the discount on products, but I'm also like learning how to do makeup because I've never been able to wear eye makeup before. Um, every, every brand of eye makeup I've tried has been, uh, it's like, it makes my eyes burn. And so I've got like this low level burn in my, in my face all day long. And so I've never, you know, I never consistently wore eye makeup. And that means that I never really learned how to, to use it, how to put it on. And so I was like, well, I'll, um, in the skincare line is, you know, they've got a list of like 1500 ingredients that they'll never use. And and a lot of them are like things that are banned by the European union, but not in the U S and like all this stuff. And so I'm like, all right, it, it works for me. It doesn't make my face hurt. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and, and try it. And so I'm kind of slowly learning how to actually put makeup on. Um, and so I've started doing like Facebook live videos every once in a while. I created a public page so that people could see it because, um, I don't know. It just felt like a thing to do. I'm not consistent though. That's, that's a problem I have. And I'm not really salesy and you have to be kind of salesy if you actually want to make sales. So I'm like, I'll just get the discount for a little while. And then they're going to tell me I can't sell anymore because I'm not selling two people and then it'll be fine. But while I'm doing that, it is kind of fun to be like, Hey, this is, this is a thing I'm learning. You can watch me be ridiculous trying to figure it out if you want to. It's fun. Yeah. Um, so I wanted, I I think the thing that I want to leave on, there's more from Marisa and maybe this is something we can come back to and do like a members only episode. Although we already have one members only episode in the hopper that I need to listen to and post, but she wrote, she, we talked a little bit about her cookbook writing process, which I thought was really, really interesting and really valuable, but we're getting close to an hour. So I want to keep it on topic with, um, with audience building. Um, but I asked her kind of, it was one of the last things I asked her and she actually made me cry. Um, but I asked her the best, the best advice that she ever received. Um, just, just kind of in general. Um, I, I think I was couching it in terms of like, cookbook writing, but, but this is just general 
awesome advice for whether you're building an audience or not, or, you know, building your confidence or not, or whatever. This is just awesome advice. So here we go. I'd really try to remind myself to not take it all so seriously. You know, there have been moments along this path where I have found myself weeping or I have beaten myself up. And to be honest, it hasn't mattered. I remember when I was, um, I was 26 and in a job I hated and um, I didn't even get an interview for a job I really thought I had a chance at getting. And I ran into a woman who was my mom's age, who I had worked with a little bit and who I really respected. And I, I was working at the University of Pennsylvania, and so it's a big place, but I was running an errand across campus and I just happened to run into her. And I was halfway to tears just as I walked across campus. And she stopped me because she could see that I was really distressed. And, um, and she asked me what was going on and I told her. And it's like, I can still hear her voice in my head. And she just said so firmly, this is just a blip. This is not your whole life. Your life is not over. This is a blip. I know it feels like the end of the world right now, but it is just a blip. And I have held on to that my entire life since then, and it has served me so well. So I guess this is an advice that I would give to myself, but the advice that I got from someone that really made a huge difference for me is just remembering to contextualize it all. Remembering that no matter how hard or heavy or overwhelming it feels in the moment, it will pass. This is just a blip. It will get better. And that when you can pull yourself out of the panic or the trauma or the upset and remember that, that it just helps. It, it's always helped me to kind of be able to step back and pull myself out of the emotion and find a way towards sort of just breathing and remembering that it'll be okay again. I was sobbing because, I, I mean, I, I don't think I've talked about it a, a lot here, but I have had... I mean, the last quarter of 2017 was really, really rough for me um, for a whole slew of reasons that actually aren't even mine to get into. And uh, and she said that and I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> she's totally right. So those words came to me on a day where I felt really low and really bad and I really needed to hear them. So, um, and I've, I've thought about them like pretty much every day since Marisa and I talked and, uh, like, I hope that that's encouragement to, to people listening is it, it is likely just a blip. I mean, I know there are exceptions to the rule, but whatever it is you're facing is probably just a moment and it will get better. That makes me really happy because yeah, they're 2017, man. Yeah, it was, it was rough. Yeah, it was rough. Yes. So, um, so I think that's all for now, Tempest, unless you have something else you'd like to bring up. No, man, I'm, I'm just happy to be in 2018. Me too. <laughs> I like that note. But, I like yes. ending on that note. Yes, we're happy to be here in, in the year 2018. So, I mean, yes. we made it through, right? <laughs> we did. We made it. So, uh, as always, I'll let Marisa tell you where you can find her. So, you can find my blog at foodandjars.com, and I am 
at Food and Jars on Instagram and Twitter, um, Facebook, you, just about any social media, you'll find me at Food and Jars. And then my podcast is called Local Mouthful, and I co-host it with my friend Joy Manning. She's the editor of Edible Philly. And um, you can find that at localmouthful.com. And we are Local Mouthful on all the social media platforms. And, you know, if you like home cooking, we are two people who just sit down and talk about food and cooking. And there's, it's not really about restaurants, which is what food media typically is. It's about cooking at home and all the ways to make it better and more delicious and easier and more joyful. Yay, more joy. You know joy? No, I mean, yay, more joyful. Oh, yay, more Yes, got it. Yay for joy. <laughs> oh, my Lord. All right. Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Aline. That's at A-L-E-N. You can find Tempest at Tiny Tempest. You can find the show at Originality FM. And until next time, focus on a small audience. Unless Tempest has something better. Eat some food. Eat some food. Food is good for you. <laughs>